today on Summit Life with J.D. Greer. You envy those people who have the thing that you most worship. If you love popularity and prestige, then you will be envious of those who have more friends and influence than you. If you love thinking of yourself as the perfect mom and homemaker, then you're gonna envy other mothers who seem to be doing it better than you. Follow the smoke trail of your envies down to the fires that you have built at your altars of worship, because that's where the real problem is. Welcome to Summit Life, the Bible teaching ministry of pastor, author, and theologian J.D. Greer. I'm Molly Vitovich, and we are thankful to be jumping into God's Word with you today. Sociologists say that envy seems to be a bigger problem for today's generation than any before us, and I think we all know why. Social media seems designed to play on it, leaving us all discouraged and wanting what others are daily showing off to the world. But it's important to remember that when we look at other people's lives on social media, we are seeing quite literally a filtered image. So let's join Pastor JD right now as he concludes his message on the difficult emotion of envy. Envy, at least a version of it, was a key element at work in the Garden of Eden. God had told Adam and Eve that they could eat of literally every tree in the garden except one. And they thought, well, I bet that's the best one. I bet that's where the best fruit is. I bet he's holding out on us. Tim Keller summarizes it this way. He says, envy will make you think something is wrong, even in paradise. And that dries up your soul, taking away even your appetite to enjoy things. I was one time talking with somebody who had some issues with throat and mouth cancer. And they said, you know, one of the worst, most unexpected things was losing my ability to taste. He says, food no longer tastes good to me. And he says, I didn't realize that, that when you lose your appetite, just so much of your life gets destroyed. Well, that's what envy does. It is a cancer that destroys your ability to enjoy anything, to taste anything. For example, envy makes some of you unhappy in your marriage. It makes some of you unhappy in your job. It's why you've become a generally critical person, critical about everything. It's why you can find a flaw in anything. That critical spirit is not a personality quirk. It comes from a deep dissatisfaction that arises many times from envy. That's why some of you guys are having a midlife crisis when you're only in your early 20s. Because you're like, well, I just feel like there's gotta be more from life because you're looking around. It's why lurking in the back of your mind, every time you look at Facebook or Instagram, you're always thinking, well, I think others are probably enjoying something that I'm missing out on. Nothing's ever good enough because envy has destroyed your ability to enjoy the good, if not imperfect things that God has put in your life. Stop ignoring that check engine light. You got a cancer in your soul that is drying up your life force and it's gonna start drying up everybody around you. You start to feel faint, which is another translation, a different English translation of Numbers 11 uses. You start to feel faint in whatever you have and like life requires more for you to be really healthy, to be really fully alive, it needs something else. The happy life always seems like it's right over there, right somehow in that one tree that God has not let you have yet. You're like, well, that's where it is. It's just right there. If I could just get that one tree that God has said no to me for right now, then I would be healthy and then I'd be fully alive. Y'all, but it's a lie. Go read the book of Ecclesiastes and come back and tell me if literally being the richest, smartest, most powerful man in the world with the most girl, girlfriends and the most fame is gonna lead to any kind of happiness. I'll give you a big hand. The answer is no. That's not where it is. Number three, envy ignores God's goodness promise for the future. They seem 
insanely to forget this whole situation they're in is temporary. God was sending them to a literal promised land that flowed with milk and honey, which is their way of saying abundant in blooming onions and cheesecakes, non-calorie ones. You can just eat all you want. You never get fat. He's like, that's, it's just going to be awesome. It's just amazing. Y'all let me acknowledge. Okay. Just, I want you to hear me. There are some good things that you might want that you miss out on for a few years. For some of you, you might miss out on for your entire life, but those deprivations are only temporary. Wealth or a strong and beautiful body or regular vacations to Hawaii, they might be some of those things you miss out on or a great marriage, even a great family might be one of those things you miss out on. In fact, part of Paul's counsel to those who are unhappily single is he tells them to reflect on how temporary this situation is. 1 Corinthians 7, he says, verse 29, 1 Corinthians 7, the appointed time is growing very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Now, at first, when you read that, you're like, what? That seems like a terrible verse. That seems like the key verse of people going to Vegas. Let those who have wives live as though they had none. But let me assure you, that is not what Paul means. Now, look at the next verse. He explains himself, verse 30, for the present form of this world is passing away and along with it, Things like marriage and biological families and cousins and sons and daughters, none of that stuff's going into heaven. So basically he says, you married people should reflect on the fact that your marriage is not ultimate or permanent. And you single people should reflect on the fact that your situation is not permanent either. Both situations are light and momentary. And soon they will give way to what is permanent and ultimate, which is Christ and the church and eternity. And on that day, Paul assures you, and the whole Bible assures you, none of us will suffer any kind of lack. Psalm 17, 15, as for me, David says, I will behold your face in righteousness. When I awake in heaven, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. None of us are gonna feel like we're missing out on anything. Or Psalm 16, 11, a verse that we use a lot here. In your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Fullness of joy means joy that could not get any stronger. Pleasures forevermore means literally no pleasure conceived that could last any longer than what you're going to experience up in heaven. 1 Corinthians 2, 9, one of my favorite verses about heaven. As it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has even heard, no human heart has conceived. God has prepared these things for those who love him. If you can think about it, it's not good enough for what's gonna happen up there, right? It literally cannot be described. And if somehow I could describe it to you, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. He'd be like me standing up here telling you about a square circle or a four-sided triangle. It just would not compute. And see, because of that knowledge of what is coming in eternity, I, watch this. It means that because I know that, I can be content with the impartial blessings that I have now, even if there's a bunch more that I want that I don't have yet. Because these small blessings point to something far greater I will soon receive. The time is short. And that's going to be what God gives me in a promised land that is flowing with milk and honey. All right, alert here for a minute. I'm gonna tell a total nerd story. And I'm doing this for just a handful of you, but the handful of you better appreciate this, okay? J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis were really good friends. Did y'all know that? I mean, J.R.R. Tolkien led C.S. Lewis to faith in Christ when they were both professors at Oxford. Both of them are writers. In fact, both of them would arguably two of the most influential Christian writers of the last, you know, British writers at least, of the last hundred years. Tolkien was very envious of Lewis. 
because they used to talk about how they wanted to write books that everybody loved to read and wanted to write books that would really change the world. And Lewis was a writing machine. He just churned out book after book after book and his books were selling like crazy. And J.R.R. Tolkien was stuck on one book he was trying to write. It was called Lord of the Rings. And he kept on writing and rewriting chapters because nothing was ever as good as what he aspired to. It just can never be good enough because I gotta be better than Lewis. He got so frustrated with his lack of progress compared to Lewis that he got writer's block and stopped working on the Lord of the Rings completely. He just put it aside, said, I'm never gonna pick that up again or touch it again. He said, then one night, he said, I had a dream. He said, when I woke up, I wrote the dream down into a story. And after this dream, he said, I was fine. The story is called Leaf by Niggle. That's a strange, I know, but just, I just want to nerd everybody out for a minute. How many of you have read Leaf by Niggle? Anybody in here? All right, good. So fellow nerds, we identify. Here we are. It's a curious little story. Niggle is an artist that is commissioned by his town to make a mural. But after years of working on this mural, he had only completed a leaf in the mural. And then after years with only a leaf completed, he died. And he's on a train to paradise and as he's going into paradise, before him stands the tree completely finished. And Tolkien said, I realize that in this was a picture of my life. All of us only get to taste a little bit of the world to come. Some of us get more than others, but eventually we're all gonna get the whole tree. So when, we, when all we feel like we have is a leaf, you can look toward heaven and think about the day that you're gonna enjoy and experience and see the full tree. The point is our knowledge of what is coming in the future can help keep us content here when there's some blessing that I want but just don't have yet. Or like another one of my favorite authors, Jen Wilkins says it, those who know good awaits them in heaven can be content with having little here on earth. By the way, realizing this was what freed Tolkien's of his writer's block. He was able to feel free of the pressure of feeling like everything had to be perfect. And so his appetite came back, so to speak, and he finished Lord of the Rings and glorious orcs and all. And by the way, if Lord of the Rings was only the leaf, I can't wait to see the whole story, the whole tree up in heaven, right? And all God's nerds said, amen, amen. All right, lastly, number four. Number four, envy doubts God's goodness experienced in guidance. So number one was envy, let's see if I can get this right. Envy forgets God's goodness poured out in the past. Number two, envy overlooks God's goodness provided in the present. Number three, envy ignores God's goodness promised for the future. Number four, envy doubts God's goodness experienced in his guidance. God had a purpose for his people even in the wilderness. It was a part of his plan to make them into his special people. In the wilderness, God was teaching his people things about faith that were far more valuable than garlic and onions. And his presence was with them every step of the way, keeping them from famine and war and all the diseases of Egypt, right? They literally never got sick for 40 years, but envy kept them from seeing that or believing it. Instead, they saw themselves as alone, abandoned and deprived of the really good stuff in life, like garlics and leeks and onions. In 1 Corinthians 10, the apostle Paul references this story in Numbers 11, and he says the root cause of what's going on here, the root cause of their envy is idolatry. And at first that may sound confusing because you say, well, idolatry, I didn't see any little gold statues in the story. I didn't see anybody bowing down, you know, worshiping a different God. But idolatry is when you love and crave something more than you love and crave God. 
when you think that something beyond God and his plan for you is more necessary for the good life than God and his plan. Watch this. You see, according to Jesus in John 6, Jesus was symbolized in the manna. So in despising the manna, and they're saying the manna was not enough, they were despising Jesus and saying Jesus was not enough. What they always had and what we always have in every situation was the ever-present fellowship of Jesus, the knowledge of his love and the assurance of his promises, and that is supposed to be enough. And if we gotta choose between him and that and garlic and onions, we take him because knowing him is the essence of the happy and the abundant life. Knowing him is what keeps our souls from drying up. Knowing him is what makes us really come alive. And this is eternal life, Jesus said, John 17, three, to know him, that's eternal life, just knowing him. Eternal life's not streets of gold, no sickness. No, eternal life is just knowing you, and that's something that you can know right now. Eternal life is something you begin right now. Um, Jesus said, I've come to give them life and to give it to them more abundantly. And that life that they're looking for is found in me. He says, they didn't get that. They were idolaters. They didn't think God was enough. So they turned elsewhere. Soren Kierkegaard, the old philosopher in his book, Sickness Unto Death, says that envy arises directly out of worship. If you want to understand what you really worship, listen to this. If you want to understand what you really worship, if I asked you what you worship, everybody in you know, listen to me this week. And what do you worship? All of you would say, God. Well, I have no statues in my house. I worship God. He says, if you want to understand what you really worship, follow your envies. You envy those people who have the thing that you most worship. For example, if you love popularity and prestige, then you will be envious of those who have more friends and influence than you. That was totally me in high school and college and the rest of my life as well. Um, if you love thinking of yourself as the perfect mom and homemaker, if that is where you find your worth and identity, then you're gonna envy other mothers who seem to be doing it better than you. If you worship the idea of being happily married or having a boyfriend or being in love, then you're gonna feel envious of those who have a boyfriend if you don't or a girlfriend, or you're always gonna be on the lookout for those whose relationships seem better than yours. If you idolize family stability, then you are envious of those who look like they've got a better family dynamic than you. Follow the smoke trail of your envies down to the fires that you have built at your altars of worship because that's where the real problem is. Don't just deal with the smoke, deal with the idolatry because that is the only place to correct the problem. It's like Paul, Paul Tripp says, if you worship your way into envy, well, see, then you gotta worship your way out. Right? You worship your way into envy, I can't just tell you to stop doing it. If you worship your way in, you gotta worship your way out. I have a pastor friend in Texas who says, we, um, our church was growing. People were talking about us. We were kind of the hot new church. So, so we, 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 we had a building campaign and we were gonna move cross town and we were gonna move into a better section of town and that was gonna be where our church exploded and we went from kind of cool new church to we went to one of the nation's premier mega churches. He said, I don't really, to this day, I don't know how to explain it, but when we made that move, it never happened. He said, we started to struggle. Our attendance began to, to lag. We struggled to just pay the, 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 the debts. I mean, we, we keep doing things, but we never became that kind of big, huge church. He said, I was walking through a field behind my house one day, and he said, I'll just be honest, I was angry at God. And I started to yell at God, and, and I, you know, I told God about a pastor, he said, not far from me, who'd had affairs with five women, and his church grew really big while he was having it, and he ended up getting fired. Another guy north of me at a mega church, but he was now going to jail for embezzlement. 
He says, I just looked up at God and I said, God, come on. You got the wrong address in your blessing. I got my pants on. I got my hands off the offering plate. You got these guys over here doing all this stuff. Why aren't you blessing me? So all of a sudden, this little question came into my mind. Son, when will Jesus be enough for you? He said, sometimes, honestly, I think that's when I became a Christian. He said, I just fell down on my knees and I started to weep because I realized that he had not been enough for me. He had never been enough for me. I wanted Jesus plus all this other stuff. I was miserable because of our attendance the day before. But I mean, if I got the Holy Spirit, if I got the word of God, why can't I be content? Why can't I be content? Why is my joy based on having to grow my church as big as somebody else's? So here's my question for you. When is Jesus going to be enough for you? Right? When is Jesus? When is, I know you want to have a better job. That's fine. I know you want to live in a nicer house. That's fine. That's not unspiritual. You might want to be married. You might wish your husband was like you know, somebody else. You might wish they would improve. That's fine. Right? To, 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 to want these things to to improve, but when is Jesus going to be enough for you that you can be content and not hate people who have what you think that you want? You think this is something that only unspiritual people wrestle with? How about Apostle Paul? Passage we looked at the other day, a couple weeks ago, when we were talking about anxiety, Paul said this. Paul said this because he struggles with it. Watch this. I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. See that word learned? It didn't come instinctively. I had to learn it. Now I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. See, I know that my God will supply every need of yours and mine according to his riches of glory and glory in Christ Jesus. You ought to keep in mind, by the way, that Paul wrote this from prison. He's under house arrest. He's been betrayed by his friends. There are people literally going from church to church that he's planted, smearing his name. He's not getting a lot of letters from those churches he planted. He's chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day. And put it this way, he's not writing these words on the beach, drinking a little drink with an umbrella in it. He's not living his best life now. But he says, listen, I've learned to be content with a little and I can be content with a lot. It doesn't really change my contentment. I'd rather have a lot than a little but neither the lot or the little changes my contentment because I've learned to do all things through Christ, through him who strengthens me. Y'all, contrary to popular opinion, that is not supposed to be the athlete's verse who quotes it as they get ready to shoot a foul shot and I can make this foul shot through Christ who strengthens me. That is not what that verse means. What that verse actually means if you wanna apply it to the athlete is, if I make this foul shot and become the hero, great. And if I airball this foul shot and they make fun of me for the rest of my life and I lose the championship game and because of that, I never get picked and I never go pro and my whole sports career comes crashing down, it's okay because I've got Christ. I can do all things through Christ. It is because of the presence of Christ. He is the real manna. He is what my soul needs. I just need him to come alive. I don't need my jersey in the rafter. I don't need people talking about me. I don't need to be the hero, the champion. I don't need a bunch of money. I just need Jesus. He is enough. The secret to contentment is not being thankful for the little that you have. The secret to contentment is seeing how much you really have been given, how rich a treasure we possess in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And you are to feast on Jesus, the true and eternal manna. It is knowing him, I promise you, it is knowing him 
that is the food that your soul craves. Y'all think about it. On the cross, Jesus lived out the opposite of envy, did he not? Rather than being resentful of our joy, Jesus was broken over our brokenness. And Jesus gave up his good things so that we could be saved from our bad things. Has anybody else or anything else ever demonstrated that kind of love and commitment to you? No, that's why he's the true manna. Your hunger will cease to be overpowering only when you learn to feast on him. The secret to contentment is not just being content with the little that you have, it's learning how much God has given you in Christ. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have him than riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I just wanna be led by his nail-scarred hand. I just want Jesus. He is the manna that my soul needs. As with all these problems, I've tried to show you. We start out thinking that jealousy, envy is a horizontal problem. It's a problem between us and people who have things that we want. But what we come to see is that it's really a grudge against God. It's that Jesus is not enough for us. It's that we don't really trust him. The reason you're envious is because you don't trust him. And the reason you envy him is because you don't treasure him. He's not enough. Do you really believe in his goodness? And can you say, Jesus, right here, right now, yeah, I got a lot of things that I'm working for in life, a lot of things I want, but I, from this point on, I just need you. Just give me Jesus. Just give me Jesus. I'd rather have Jesus. And can you release yourself to Jesus all the way and say, Jesus, yes, I'm going to work for things, but I just want to do your will. I want to know that when 10 years, 20 years, 70 years, however long I live, I'm just going to have you. I just need you to be happy. I can do all things with Christ, through Christ, beside Christ. I can do all things with Jesus because you're the one who strengthens me. God, I pray that you would be the manna for our souls and release us, God, from envy and bitterness. Release us, God, from idolatry. Turn our eyes upon Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When is Jesus alone going to finally be enough for you? Don't doubt God's goodness. You're listening to Summit Life, the Bible teaching ministry of J.D. Greer, Pastor J.D., our current teaching series about emotions is called Smoke from a Fire. Can you explain what you mean by that phrase? Yeah, that phrase actually comes from St. Augustine, where he said that our emotions, especially emotions that are troubling to us, um, like anxiety, worry, fear, stress, um, deep sadness, he said those are like smoke that are that is arising from the fire. And if we follow a, this trail of smoke back down to the fire, we can see the altars that we're worshiping at. So it's actually an indication. It's an indicator light of what's actually going on in your heart. So rather than just trying to suppress your emotion or deal with your emotion, I need to be less sad, less worried. You've got to actually figure out what is it that is the fire that indicates the altar you're worshiping at that's creating uh, that emotion. Uh, we have a new devotional book that I'm really excited about because it's a great um, a great tool to help you actually do this. Um, it's called Smoke from a Fire, just like our series, and I, I think it'll make a great accompaniment to you as you, as you listen to and study and ponder these things. Please get in touch with us today. And like JD said, we'd like to get you our newest resource when you visit jdgreer.com. 
This 10-day devotional and scripture guide will help you call to mind the goodness of God and realize that His plans for you are ultimately good. Let us get it to you today. I truly believe it will be something that you will continue to come back to again and again for important reminders and encouragement. The Smoke from a Fire devotional workbook comes as our way of saying thanks when you donate to support this ministry. Your generosity makes it possible for us to produce these programs and to keep them coming to you on the radio, TV, and web. When you give, you're helping someone else experience the extravagant, life-changing love of God through this program. Join that mission by giving today and be sure to ask for your copy of Smoke from a Fire. Call 866-335-5220. That's 866-335-5220. Or give online at jdgreer.com. That's J-D-G-R-E-E-A-R.com. I'm Molly Vitovich. Thank you for joining us today and be sure to tune in tomorrow as we begin the difficult emotion of shame right here on Summit Life with J.D. Greer. Today's program was produced and sponsored by J.D. Greer Ministries.